All right, what's going on, guys? Welcome to today's episode. Today, I'm sitting down with uh, Christian Thibodeau. I want to make sure I'm saying that correctly. Okay, perfect. (laughs) And we're going to talk about uh, when to increase or reduce training volume. Now, this is something I know a lot of people have questions about. And, uh, you know, just before we get into this, if you like today's episode, as always, make sure you hit the subscribe button, make sure you share it with a friend, and just pass along that love, man. So I, I appreciate uh, you guys listening. So Christian, man, thanks so much for jumping on. It's great to have you here. Can you just give a little bit of an introduction to, you know, maybe for the, the people who aren't familiar with you and some of your work? Do I have to? <laughs> That's like literally the thing I hate doing the most, but just, just to get it started. Anyway, it, it takes about five minutes until my brain is like firing on all cylinders and my adrenaline is high enough to be like tolerable to listen to. So uh, oh, this is the warm up, man. There you go. The, the, the sucky part will be me talking about myself. Uh, well, I, I guess what, what if you could, like if you can um, compress all of that I've done uh, in my career, it can be somewhat presentable over five minutes. Um, I, I've been a strength and conditioning coach for, I would say, like 23 years. Uh, actually started working with pro athletes right from the start, not because I'm good, because I really wasn't at the time, just because I was super lucky to have a, a mentor who actually gave me control of his athletes afterwards. Um, I, I've trained athletes from 26 or 28 different sports, I lose count, ranging from high school athletes all the way uh, to professional athletes and Olympians. Myself, I've competed in Olympic weightlifting. In I started with football then Olympic weightlifting, um, did some bodybuilding. Basically, I was really bad at pretty much everything I personally tried. That's why I became a coach. Uh, like genetics kind of is your limitation in, in many regards. I've been, uh, but basically my, I, I think that the biggest impact I've made, and that's like my big ego talking, is sharing information with people, either in the form of articles. I've written over seven on, uh, seven articles, 700 articles over my career. The books I've written, material I've published, uh, or the videos or the podcast, because what I'm doing right now is pretty much concentrating on teaching people, either it's seminars, books, articles, and stuff like that. Yeah, and you write for T Nation like a ton. You're kind of one of their flagship writers. Yeah, I started writing for them, uh, I think in 1999. It's been more oh, than 20 most. years. Dude, and it's, it, dude, it's funny because originally I actually had my my own website. That's when you could have like an angel fire domain and each page would take about 10 minutes to load. And I started (laughs) a a training page with two friends of mine. One was in uh, Sweden, uh, Joachim Bartold. He was later um, the editor of their version of Iron Man magazine. And then Eric Essie from Toronto, who was eventually uh, ended up working for Muscle Tech. And we had this page, just like three kids publishing articles about training. And, you know, my, my English is pretty bad right now, but it was horrible back then. I don't even know how people could read them. But I guess the passion kind of bled through and, and they kind of liked it. And we actually made fun of T-Nation quite a bit in those articles. But I was still reading the material because, I mean, back in the days, it was like a real hardcore magazine. You had you had Polican, you had Ian King, you had Brian Batchelor for the supper supplements and stuff like that. So it was quite innovative at the moment. At the time, there was really no big uh, websites targeting the, the bodybuilding and strengthening audience. And one day, man, I, I sent them an article, like just, just for, for fun, right? I, don't, I didn't even know if you could submit articles. I just found a way to send them an article. And they published it. And I actually got a check in the mail. Dude, I can do this for a living. So I, I started pumping out articles, and they would pretty much reject all of them. 
So I went back and read all the articles, look at what was like the best, best formats, best, top, best topics. How do you talk to people when you, when you write? And then I, I got articles picked up and articles picked up, articles picked up. One point, I actually received a call, a phone call at my parents' house, which still freaks me out today, today because that was the owner of T Nation. I have no idea how we got that number, right? So he actually offered me a full-time writer's job for, for them. So I've been writing for them for 22 years. And that's pretty much what got me started. I, it's funny because people often ask me, and, and please don't ask me that questions, and that's question, tips on how to become a successful trainer because I have no fucking clue. I mean, I got super lucky. I mean, I got ended professional athletes right from the start. I, I, my articles got published out of nowhere and that actually gave me the credibility to go after um, bigger athletes or, or bigger contracts. So that really was all luck, to be honest. It's funny, actually, because I kind of had a similar experience uh, with, with writing for T Nation. I submitted an article um, and at first they were like, no, we can't publish this. This, this reads more like a, like a peer-reviewed paper. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> They're like, yeah, we need something a little bit more accessible. So then I wrote another one that I thought was like fairly good and like, but a lot more, again, user-friendly, I guess. And they were like, nope, still too complex. And then I was like, okay. And then I wrote another article and it was a lot more just about like, I think it was, it was called like five, five exercises you should be doing for strength or something like that. I wrote it in like 10 minutes. And I was like, I don't think they're going to accept this. And they accepted it. And now it's on like one of the most popular articles that they have. And I was like, what the hell? And so I, I, I think it's, it's been really interesting anyways, because like, you know, Andrew Coates, obviously. So like he was the one who kind of initially got me writing. And it's really funny to look at the different styles of different publications that you're writing for. And, and the T Nation one, for me anyways, is still a tricky one to kind of figure out. Well, and the weird thing is that the articles you think will do the best normally don't work because we like the deep stuff. We like, we like theories. We like to experiment. People want tricks that they want easy to digest, quick material that you can apply in a gym right now or controversy. That's the two things that they really like. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's a bit, of, it's a bit of a learning curve, but Talk against uh, it's, it's or cool. vegan and you always get your articles published. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, to, to kind of <laughs> off on a little bit of a tangent there. So I, got, I kind of wanted to um, talk a little bit about, I guess, first of all, the relationship between volume and strength and volume and um, muscle mass, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's something that's still kind of debated. And we were seeing a lot of literature, especially recently coming out, showing that, hey, you know what, in a lot of cases, like, less is more and we can actually get equivocal hypertrophy with you know quite a bit less volume if we push much much closer to to that failure um and so then it kind of opens up the the doors to a lot of different possibilities in terms of training style based on preference or or you know whatever it is that you have access to and a whole host of things so can you kind of touch on that relationship and we'll kind of center the uh the, the conversation i guess primarily just around strength and, and volume yeah, for sure, sure. strength and muscle mass. I mean, yeah, I'll start with just just prior to the answer to the question, uh, a quick talk about studies, okay? Because well, the, the, I mean, and, and I'm a science guy. I love reading scientific material. I try to integrate the information as best as I can, more mostly to 
understand why what I'm doing is working or not working. Okay, and then okay, I can I can tinker with that. But when you combine, when you look at studies, for example, comparing various training protocols, and so group A is receiving protocol A, group B, protocol B, for example, and then they do that for 10 weeks, then you compare the results. The big issue I have with that is that they can't control for every variable that can actually have an impact on strength and size gain. Like, like for example, uh, surely they look at experience. How long has that person been in the gym? But you know just as well as I do that you could have been going to gyms for 10 years, but you only packed two pounds of muscle and increase your strength by 10%. You are still a beginner. And you could, have been, you could be going to the, hitting the gym seriously for two years, but you increase your strength by 50%, gain 12 pounds of muscle. You are more advanced than the person hitting the gym for 10 years. But the studies only look at years of training, not how much muscle you've gained, how much strength you've gained since you started training. Then there's obviously the aspect of nutrition. Sure, normally these studies, especially those looking at muscle mass, they will provide nutritional guidelines so that the groups, they are actually given a diet. But you know, I've been working with clients for uh, what, 20 years now, and I can tell you that when you give someone, someone a diet, even if they are super motivated to change their body, they don't follow it that great. Some will follow it 80%, some it's more like 50 others see it as a suggestion. And so when you're dealing with the subjects involved in those studies, they are mostly college students. Try to have a college student follow a strict diet for 10 weeks. Good luck, man. That's not going to happen. So, so really, you're, uh, if for some reason you have a group where people naturally eat more or eat better for growth or strength, then they will naturally have better gains, even if the protocol is not the best. Same thing if you have a group where you had people uh, gain a lot of muscle mass prior, they have much less room to continue gaining, right? So that group will have less gains. Then you have other factors like recovery. If a group naturally you have more people getting their eight or nine hours of sleep a night, then you will have better results than the group who has less than that. Then you have genetics that come into play. So you can't account for all of those when you're doing a study on two protocols for hypertrophy. And if the luck of the draw favors one group over the other, then that group will naturally have better results. That doesn't mean the protocol is any better, right? Then there's also the effect of, as you mentioned earlier, how hard are you pushing these sets? Sure, the study, for example, the study will mention that we push the, the, the subject to failure on all sets. Well, just I was just looking at a recent study. I talked about it in one of my seminars, my recent seminar. And the group, I don't have the reference by ahead. I, I, I have to send it to you. But they did, among other things in their workout, eight sets of eight to 10 on squats to failure with 60 seconds of rest. I mean, you've been to the gym. Is it possible to do eight sets of eight to 10 to true muscle failure with 60 seconds of rest? Dude, I'm going to pass out after two sets. So, so there is no way that all the, the persons involved in the study were actually training to failure, which is a very important variable. Training to failure, one rep short, two rep short, three rep short, four rep short, will have a completely different physiological impact. And the truth is that someone who does not push their sets as hard as they should or as hard as they could will require more volume to progress. That's a fact. Because each set 
is not challenging either the nervous system or the muscles enough to provide a strong stimulation for strength or for growth. So they need to compensate the lack of effectiveness of that set by doing more and more and more sets, okay? So it's, it's really hard to know and to have a conclusive answer when you look at studies. So it's really, I think, the, the, the relationship between volume and intensiveness, how hard you're pushing these sets. And from my experience, okay, you have three very important variables when it comes to how much training stress you can tolerate. The first one will be volume, how much work you're doing in a gym. And by the way, volume is not what most people think it is. It's not sets and reps. It's sets and reps and weight, the tonnage. For example, and I'm going on a tangent here, the idea in strength that the stronger you become, the more advanced you are, the more volume you need, probably comes from the, the, the Soviet literature that looked at uh, Olympic weightlifters training and what they noticed is that the more advanced lifters were doing a lot more tonnage in training Well, if you can clean and jerk 200 kilos, of course your tonnage is going to be higher than someone who can clean and jerk 100 Even if you don't do more sets your volume your tonnage still doubles just because you're using twice as much weight tonnage is Volume is sets reps and weight. Okay of course, they were still doing more sets and reps, but that's because they were professional athletes and they were on steroids. And maybe the beginners were not. So is it really the fact that their body got used to the volume, so they actually needed more volume to keep progressing? Or that their conditions, now they were high enough in results to become quote-unquote, sorry, quote-unquote, professional lifters sponsored by the state and given pharmaceuticals that beginners or athletes of a lower class were not getting, or not as much, that would actually allow them to tolerate and grow for more volume. So it, it, it's worth asking. So realistically speaking, me, I see volume as mostly a way to compensate for not training as hard, not pushing your set hard enough, not necessarily going to failure, but, but, but like challenging your set on your set. Set on your sets. Uh, but however, that having been said, I'm not necessarily a low volume guy. There is a place where you need to increase volume. And, and for example, if you take a beginner, they can't tolerate as much training volume as someone who's more advanced because their body is new to that stimulus. It's an attack on their body. Their body, the muscles, the tendons, the ligaments, the nervous system, they are not accustomed to that amount of stress. So you can't overload it with or bombard with tons of volume, okay? As they become intermediate, for example, they can gradually increase volume, increase volume, increase volume. However, it's not uh, an, a, a one-way direction thing because once you become really advanced, you actually need to decrease the volume. Think about it, okay? If you squat 800, okay? and you're working at 80%. I really pick bad numbers because I suck at math, but 80% at 800, since I have never squatted 800, I have no idea what 80% is. Let's say it's 600 pounds, right? And someone who squats 400, okay? That same 80% might be 300. Now it's still 80%. The muscle can still lift the weight, but 600 has a lot greater systemic impact than 300 
you still have the same skeletal system. Yes, the tendons are a bit stronger, but it's the same ligament, same hormonal system, same nervous system. So as you get stronger, the training you do, because the weights are so much heavier, take a lot greater toll on your body. Plus, as you get more advanced, you have more injuries, you have more wear and tear. So you actually can't do as much volume. And also one thing you need to consider, if you're squatting 800, okay, you're not going to need only three warm-up sets. Okay? You're going to need eight, roughly, to work up to that weight. If you squat 400, in three sets, you can be ready to go. So those warm-up sets, even though they are not done to failure, it's still physical work. It's still wear and tear on the joints. It's still wear and tear on the tendons. There, there's even some muscle fatigue going on, and that actually increased the need for recovery. Even active recovery sessions are stressful in the body. The reason they work is that they actually provide a, a, a strong enough stimulus to trigger the cytokine response, to trigger the, 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 the repair mechanism, mechanism, while not causing enough damage to lengthen the recovery period. So, so normally, I would say that the volume is more of a bell curve thing. As you become more intermediate, you, you can increase volume. And as you become more advanced, you need to focus more on the quality of your workout, using better movements, you're training harder, but doing a lot less effort just because what you're doing stresses the body more. Now, one thing, and I'll end on that because it's all over the place, but I think it will give us some directions for conversation, is that as you become advanced, we are in a catch-22 situation. Okay. The body does need a stronger growth stimulus to keep progressing because it's fully adapted to the stress of training. It's really hard to provide a stress that is high enough to keep the body progressing. But if we do that across the board, what happens is we create too much stress for the systemic system. The nervous system can't handle it. The, the hormonal system can't handle it. So that's why with advanced athletes, one good option is a specialization approach. You decide to focus on one lift. Let's say that my goal is to, Im to improve my, my bench press for the next cycle. I'm going to bring down my squat and then the volume as low as I, as I can while not losing my, my performance so I can increase my bench press accordingly. The key with specialization is you need to almost double the amount of work you're doing on the lift you're specializing on, but you need to decrease the volume accordingly on everything else you do as to not create a systemic overload. So that's a lot of stuff, but personally, volume, in my opinion, is the last thing you increase. You, you first need to learn to train hard, uh, use way to train harder without having to do more, and it becomes more of a way to, con to add gains if other things like pushing your sets harder, selecting better exercises to target your weaknesses, uh, using special methods to trigger more growth, like cluster training, like eccentric overloads, like using bands and chain, which should be used only by advanced athletes. But this is, these are all new stimuli that can actually give you a boost in strength. And when your body becomes adapted to those, now you might need to increase volume. But it's really, it's really the last thing you should be doing. The problem I see nowadays, okay, is that people, because of what they, they, they read on social and stuff like that, they say, okay, volume is the most important thing. 
and automatically it wires their brain not to focus so much on quality of effort, intensity of effort, and exercise selection. Because they, well, you know what? The more work I do, the better. Who cares if an exercise is not the best for my body type? I can like throw in five or six other ones. Uh, you, and that leads to people training a lot more, but not de developing the skill to push themselves hard or to be able to diagnose their weakness and select the best exercises to fix that weak point. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And I mean, uh, a big trend that I've seen lately has been calling into question a lot of the kind of preconceptions around volume requirements and how it needs to to be increased over time. Because I, I actually haven't really seen a lot of research that shows that. And and like you were saying, it's it's kind of like looking at volume load versus just sets versus reps. And volume load is going to increase the stronger you get. And then at the same time, like I definitely agree that eventually you kind of reach this peak where you will have to taper off. Even myself, like my training right now on my deadlift day, I work up to one top set of deadlifts. And then I work up to one top set of a squat variation. Right. And then right. I do some accessory right. work. That's a lot of work. And yeah, yeah. And and depending on how heavy I'm going for squats, like it might take me 30, 45 minutes to work up to that top set. Sure. Um, and so I, I definitely see what you're saying. But and you just, just for just as an example, you know where the JM press come from, comes from? JM Blackley. Yeah. He got so strong that he could not recover from doing a close grip bench and a tricep extension in the same workout. So he came up with an exercise that combined the benefits of both because he got so strong that doing more exercises just overloaded the tissue too much and he could not recover in time for his next session. Yeah. And, and I mean, even what you were saying a moment ago about the discussion of volume or intensity they're often kind of dichotomized when in reality it's a little bit more of like they're they're opposite sides of the same coin where volume has to be in relation to the intensity of of the exercise and and one thing that uh so my coach paul i've been working with him for uh, i don't know maybe like six months or something like that now and working with him has really changed how i perceive uh even accessories right like and, and the significance of accessories and being able to take them to failure, which I think is a relatively, I don't want to say it's a relatively new concept, but it was almost like West side was, you know, Hey, let's, let's hit max effort and really, really push hard. And then people started going away from that and being like, no, we shouldn't, you should be leaving two or three reps in the tank, which I generally think is a, a pretty good idea for the most part. Yeah, for sure, for but sure. then looking at some of the other accessory exercises and taking those to failure, but in strength, that's kind of frowned on. You're not really supposed to train to failure in strength. Yeah. And, but, and so it's kind of like there, there's this missing context of, okay, well, when are we training to failure? What is the exercise? Is it internally stabilized or externally stabilized? Is it a compound movement or an isolation movement? And so there's this kind of whole nebulous conversation that's just not happening around a lot of the, the programming design structure that, uh, that I think is really interesting. The, the example I give is that, and that's going to sound like super cliche, that building a lift or building your body is like building a house. But where I'm going with this is that you don't use a hammer the same way you use a saw. You don't use a saw with the same way you use a jackhammer. Each tool 
should have a way to be used. Like uh, if I am using power snatches, I'm not going to train it the same way I'm training bench or squat. It, uh, and then I'm not going to train squat like I'm training a leg press. I'm not going to train a leg press like I'm training a leg extension. Well, I'm not training leg extension, but you get the idea. That, that, that each class of exercise has a specific purpose. And that's the biggest mistake. One of the biggest mistakes I, I see in uh, training community is they, they program every exercises from the same point of view. Like I'm going to do my assistance work with the same quote unquote intensiveness as I do my main lift. And to me, it's a mistake. I, I absolutely just like you, I believe that the main lift, the big compound movement should not be trained to failure. It should go, should, should be heavy, but you should dominate each rep because first of all, even if you go to that, like 2.5% more uh, for your ego, I, I lifted 10 kilos, 20 kilos more. That's cool. But from an adaptation standpoint, from the nervous system adaptation, muscle adaptation, there's no difference. There's no difference between 92 and 100%. So, and with 92%, you can actually do a bit more work and you can recover a lot faster. It's not going to damage your, your, your next session. And more importantly, you can maintain perfect mechanics. Now, there is a time to go all out. There's a time to go a lot or close to it, especially if you're training, try, uh, training to perform at a meet. But the bulk of your training, you, sh you should, should be spent dominating a weight, being technically sound while under heavier and heavier loads. But for the assistance work, and that's where I think that uh, Louis had a good idea when he, he shifted all of his assistance work on a lot of isolation work, lots of machine work, that you can actually go to failure without uh, having an issue with posture, with injury or, or lack of technique. Basically, the assistance, you, have, you need to understand the purpose of assistance work. It's to build a muscle required to be strong in your lifts. And people are saying that, you know what, if I do quote unquote bodybuilding work for assistance, it's not gonna help me lift heavier weights because it's not heavy work. Well, it doesn't matter because there is no such thing as, well, there's such a thing, but it, the muscle gained doing sets of 12 or 10 is the same muscle as doing sets of eight. If you do neurological work to learn to use the muscle, muscle tissue you had it. Now, if you do all your work with sets of five or six reps, you actually don't need more nervous work because that assistance work itself, because it's heavy enough, you're training the nervous system. But if I'm training a big, my big lift heavy, I am getting the neurological stimulation. I am learning to use the muscle tissue I have. So I can actually spend the rest of the workout focusing on building muscle. And now you can, now the, the, the debate with volume versus intensiveness is important because in my opinion, it, it's one or the other. You can push one really hard and the other one needs to be slower, lower. So you can, I can go really, really hard on intensiveness. I can push my sets to failure or even beyond failure. But that means the volume I can tolerate will be much lower. On the other end of the spectrum, I can actually keep a few reps short of failure, on even when my assistants work. But I have to do more sets to compensate for the fact that each set provides a little bit less of a stimulus. Now, and as you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, it actually comes down to personal preferences. I personally believe it's best to alternate between both. 
Like I really believe in the concept of accumulation and intensification phases, and I alternate between one or the other. Accumulation, intensification, accumulation, intensification. And if I'm dealing with a competitive athlete, we will have a realization phase at the end, which actually focuses solely on the competitive. For example, I was training this female powerlifter in a 148 class. Uh, she squatted, I'm converting kilos to pounds, uh, 580. She benched 295 and she deadlifted, which is a weak lift, uh, 475. We're working on that. So she actually is ranked the number one lifter all time in the UK, according to Wilkes, male or female. And leading up to a contest, at first, we do lots of bodybuilding work, lots of bodybuilding work. And the closer we get, we get to a realization phase, we actually do the competitive lift three times a week. So we will do a full, like, squat bench deadlift session three days a week not pushing hard all the sessions but to train the body to be good at, and there's no assistance work the assistance the muscle has been built prior to that so for the four to six weeks leading into a contest we're training the body to be able to do those three lifts in the same workout because that's what you have to do on meet day okay but the rest of the season is not like that so accumulation phase would favor a higher volume of assistance work but pushing them a bit less hard and the intensification is where you tone down the volume but you push those fewer sets a lot harder a lot harder and the way i see it is the main benefit of that is not so much that the accumulation builds more muscle if it prepares the body for the harder lifting to come personally i believe that fewer sets done harder is a better recipe for most people most people those who will benefit more from a volume approach are those who can't push themselves hard enough, those who have injuries, those who have a poor immune system, uh, those who have a very stressful job, so lots of cortisol already. So pushing themselves too hard might not be a good idea, but for most people, it's better to do less and push much harder. On top of, in my opinion, giving a better stimulation, it actually trains the mindset to be able to overcome obstacles, to keep going when it's hard. But of course, that's only isolation work. But the reason why there's a purpose, there's a benefit from doing more volume, less close to failure, like two or three reps in reserve, is that you actually prepare the body for the harder things to come. You can work on better technique. You can strengthen the tendons because tendons need a lot of volume to develop. You can improve muscle control. You can use slower eccentric regardless of whatever you want to do it but, but the reason is not so much to build more muscle as it is for when i'm shifting to that intensification phase i'm actually physically able to push myself to the limit without any risk of injuries but still i would go back afterwards to an accumulation phase to give my body and nervous system a break because one thing that people don't understand, going to failure 100% is much harder on the nervous system. That's why so few people do it. Because if you, you do that as your whole training system all the time, you can burn out. Because when you go to failure, what happens on those last few reps is that the nervous system needs to work extra hard, extra hard to recruit the muscle fibers to be able to continue lifting. You need to increase firing rate, which is really hard neurologically speaking. The muscles are full of lactate uh, and hydrogen ions. The, the, the muscle milieu is a lot more acidic 
and the neural drive does not travel as well in an acidic milieu, so it's much harder for the nervous system to get those last few reps in, okay? Uh, but then again, that actually has a very strong carryover to max effort lifts. Because even though the weight is light, the condition under which the nervous system works still has to provide a very, very strong neural drive similar to doing a max effort. Those last two reps are max effort lifts, even though it's done with light weights. So it actually has somewhat of a carryover, even though the weight is not maximal. But if you truly push yourself to failure, from my experience, most people need to back off of that once in a while. That's why I like the waving thing, accumulation intensification, accumulation intensification. Or we can just do a deload. The deload would just, just as, would, would work just as fine. Yeah, I've definitely noticed that there's because previously I was I was uh, a big proponent of volume for strength, um, and then I shifted a little bit more to the high intensity, less is more, and now I'm really really sold on that, <laughs> you know, um, because I've seen a lot of benefits from that. But then I, again, I tend to kind of agree that you know during the off season hitting some you know, hitting some higher rep sets, even if you are a strength-based athlete, is probably a pretty good idea just because, I mean, one, it kind of gives you a little bit of a break from, from the heavy, heavy loads, but then also it's just a really, really different stimulus. Like squatting 10 reps versus 8 reps versus 6 versus 5, 4, 3, 2, and 1, very, very different. And um, 6 reps. 6 huh? is where it starts on big compound movement. Six yeah. reps is where it starts to feel like a completely different animal. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent, and uh, and so I, I definitely agree that there is kind of a, a definitely a benefit to to wave loading, whether that's over a short or, or kind of longer timeline. Um, but I wanted to get your input on when you think it's a good idea to adjust volume. I think you did a really great job at kind of setting the foundation of you know, creating a little bit more context around why and when we might use, you know, either higher volume approach or lower volume approach. So let's say, you know, someone is a strength-based athlete. Um, what are some of the variables that might impact your volume allocation? So let's say, are they dieting? Are they in a caloric surplus versus a deficit? Are they just kind of at maintenance? Are they in closer proximity or further proximity from, from a competition. So just kind of things like that. So what are some of the variables that you really look at and what are some of the responses that you'd make? The first thing is the level of the athlete. First thing is the level of the athlete. And, and you mentioned earlier that earlier on, you saw a benefit of, of higher volume. And in my opinion, one of those benefits, especially on the big lift or the competition lift themselves, is that you better like train, you better ingrain technique. By doing more lifts, you can practice more. Of course, the downside of that is that if you don't do the lifts properly, you just automatize poor technique, which is where people can go wrong with, with volume in that volume, it's a double-edged sword. Because if you do shitty reps, you are programming shitty reps in your brain. And one thing that we, we've learned or one thing we normally say when it comes to uh, motor learning is that it takes two good reps to correct one bad rep. 
So, so if you have all sort of shitty reps, just because it doesn't matter as long as I hit my volume number, then you will have trouble once you move on to heavier weights. So, but if you do your reps properly, in my opinion, the main benefit of the, the, the higher volume approach is to really drill those lifts that have been being said, because I strongly believe, as I mentioned earlier, that six reps is where you have a complete difference in how the movement feels and the set feels. And I believe that's because, and Russian work has shown that at 80% of your maximum, 80 to 100, the muscle fiber recruitment pattern is very, very similar. The only thing that changed is the muscle firing rate of the fast switch fibers recruited. But like 90% of the neurological work between 80 and 100 is very similar. But once you get below that 80% mark, then you have a completely different recruitment pattern. So even though we're talking about high volume, I'm talking about a high number of sets, not high number of reps. So I would prefer to do like 10 sets of three reps, leaving two or three reps in the tank than going three sets of, of 10, for example. Because if you're a strength athlete, your goal is to be able to move heavier weights. You need to practice lifting somewhat heavier weights. I call that skill, uh, strength skill. So it starts at 80%. You need to work at least at 80% and accumulate work in that zone to work on technique. That's the main benefit from me. And also, of course, building confidence under the barbell, uh, building some tendons and stuff like that. Uh, then other variables. So for example, let's say that you are an advanced athlete your technique is probably already drilled and pretty good. You might have some minor stuff to need to work on. Normally these technical problems will be more because of muscle imbalances than, or, or idiosyncrasies that come from your body type or how you learn to squat, but it's not a real issue that needs to be worked on. But as you're, when you're big, so you don't need as much volume from that motor learning standpoint. Now other factors, you mentioned caloric surplus, caloric deficit, of course, and that's, now, I, I, I talk about that to bodybuilders, uh, but the same applies to powerlifters. If you're dieting down, the natural tendency of bodybuilders is to do more because they're afraid of losing their muscle and they feel flat. They feel smaller in their clothes. So they, their instinct is to do more work to feel the pump. However, if your, your calories are lower, especially if your carbs are lower, because it's carbs that are more important. Because carbs, it's not just energy. It is, but it's because carbs will trigger many of the anabolic uh, phenomenon that will help you build muscle or repair damaged muscle tissue. Carbs will increase mTOR, which triggers protein synthesis. Carbs will increase IGF-1, will increase insulin, which are both anabolic and anti-catabolic. Uh, carbs will lower cortisol. Car carbs will fill up the muscles and, and you know, I think personally, and I'm sure you've noticed that, is that when you have a weight drop, even if it's only fat or even glycogen or water, your strength will go down, especially in the bench press and squat. And the main reason is, I believe there is such a thing as uh, passive stability. Like just the fact that the joint is packed with tons of stuff. Muscle is full of glycogen and water. There's water outside the muscle around the joint. There's more fat in there that kind of packs that shoulder joint, creating some stability. Uh, and as you, when you diet down, you're, having less, you're eating less carbs and normally less sodium. You, uh, your muscles are not as full. You're not retaining as much water and you lose stability. Now, unless you have very good 
active stability to be able to compensate for that, you will lose strength, not because you're losing muscle, because you're losing leverage and because you're losing stability. So uh, even for power lifters, your strength will go, you, you get on the, under the bench and it feels heavy as fuck because you're, you have less stability and your, your strength goes down, you panic. So what will you do? Well, I'm going to do more training, more assistance work to try to compensate. The thing is that if you are training more, you are increasing the need to recover, but you have less stuff, nutrients, anabolic hormones to recover. So you're actually asking your body to do more when you are giving it less. It doesn't work. So actually, the only if you want to do high volume, you need to be in a large caloric surplus to be able to do it. And the less calories you're ingesting, the more uh, the less volume you can do, and the more you need to push those sets out. Uh, men versus women. Women have a much high, higher work capacity and work tolerance than men. Uh, main reasons, uh, especially for the lower body, upper body less, but for lower body, because the way the pelvic is built, they actually can do more volume for lower body. They can do more reps at the same percentage normally. They can handle more sets. They can take shorter rests between, between sets. And lots of it is because they naturally are less efficient neurologically speaking. Although we are seeing that less and less because more and more women are physically active and playing sport when they're younger, which actually develops the nervous system's capacity to recruit muscles a bit more. But, but normally speaking, because they have a less efficient nervous system, even if they, are, even if they were going to failure, quote unquote, for them, it's still not as deep a failure as guys with more neurological efficiency are, 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 are getting at. Now, even if you're a guy, you go to failure, it's not going to be the same level of failure as a guy like you because the more efficient your nervous system is, the better you are at recruiting the muscle fibers you have. Each rep costs a lot more. And that's another thing. Another thing that affects volume is the more neurologically efficient you are, the less volume you need to get the same stimulus because each rep you are better at recruiting the fibers, better at making them work together and, and, and each rep actually costs you more. That's why it's, it's not a, normally when you have an advanced strength athlete, they can do a lot less reps at a given percentage of their one RM than a beginner or intermediate. Like if you are an intermediate or beginner, you probably can get 10 to 12 reps with 80% of your max in the set. If you're advanced, you're going to get five, maybe six, if you're lucky, sometimes less than that. And doing a true five by five at 80% for an advanced athlete, you need five minutes between sets if you are to achieve that. Just because each rep, you are so efficient at recruiting those fibers and creating a much stronger stimulus. So amount of volume, also influenced by how efficient your nervous system is. That's why I'm going to give you an example. I worked with some bobsleigh athletes and uh, Two one of the, the two guys, like super strong, the guy was super strong. He was only he was 185 pounds, squatted 600 for a double, which is pretty good. Now it was parallel squat because it's not the same standard as, as in powerlifting, but still pretty good. He was bench pressing in the middle of trees. Uh, he was power cleaning over 300, and he was running at 359, 30 meters, which is fucking fast. It's like a four three on a 40 yard dash. Anyway, the most volume he could tolerate in the workout was 12 total work sets, not per exercise, for the whole workout. If we did more than that, it, it crashed rapidly. 
I even trained more than one that was more extreme than that. That was in 2000 when I started out. Another bobsleigh guy, small guy, actually ran a 419 on 40 at the uh, Chicago Bears Combines. Uh, he jumped 42 inches. He benched 225 for 36 reps at a body weight of 181 pounds. His max bench was 425. Uh, so extremely explosive. He could do six to nine work sets in a workout, all exercises combined. Just because from rep one, he would actually fire, like fire all those muscle fibers and contract them, creating lots of tension. Uh, it was absolutely impossible for him to be inefficient when lifting weights. And that's the thing. The more efficient you are, the more you can, the more tension you can create in that one rep the less total reps you can perform in your workout. So again, that goes back to my, my, my beginner versus advanced in the studies. So even if you've been training for 10 years, if you have never trained hard, your nervous system is not trained properly, well, you can do lots of volume because there's no way you can reach, even if you reach failure, it's not the same failure, okay? You have protective mechanisms that come into play. You have the acidification of the milieu that because your nervous, okay, when the, as I mentioned earlier, when the muscle is acidic, the, the communication, the neural drive is less efficient at recruiting the muscle fibers. And that, that means the nervous system needs to work a lot harder to be able to recruit the fibers. Now, if you are not efficient neurologically, once you reach that amount of acidity, the nervous system can't compensate and send a stronger signal to keep doing more reps. So you hit failure. But if you have an efficient nervous system, a strong nervous system, if when you reach that same point, because you are able to send a stronger signal, maybe you get two, three, four more reps. So, so it's not the same extent of failure. See what I mean? So, so the, the level of the person, neurological efficiency, men or, or female, caloric expenditure, stress plays a big role. I strongly believe that, especially as a strength athlete, you want to avoid excess adrenaline. And excess adrenaline comes from excess cortisol. The reason is that, and okay, I'm going to backtrack, but to explain what I mean that you want to avoid excess adrenaline if you want to be strong, I'm going to explain what's happening when you peak for a competition, neurologically speaking. Because the, 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 the typical approach to deloading or peaking is I'm decreasing volume, Normally, I'm eating more unless I have to wake a weight class. So the logic is you're peaking because you're increasing glycogen stores. See, that, that's what we read about when I'm deloading, I have a surcompensation in glycogen, right? That's what we hear most of the time. But that comes from endurance studies. But the amount of glycogen stored in the muscle in powerlifting, yes, it impacts stability, but it's not a limiting factor in performance. But why can you actually improve your strength by 5 7%, 10% with a proper peaking procedure? The reason is that the harder you train, the more you train, the more cortisol you produce, right? And cortisol would be produced either in response to volume, to intensiveness, to the psychological stress of the workout, and or to the neurological demands of the session. So the harder you train, the more cortisol you produce. That's obvious, right? The thing is that cortisol actually increased the conversion of noradrenaline into adrenaline. Short, short, like shorthand version, cortisol increases adrenaline. So if you can actually, if you train too much or too hard or whatever, you can keep your adrenaline elevated for super long or at a high level, and that can make your 
beta adrenergic receptors resistant to your own adrenaline. So when your receptors become resistant to your adrenaline, it means your muscles don't respond to adrenaline quite as much. You lose strength, you lose power, you lose coordination, and you lose muscle tone. Okay, Muscle tone is actually a pretty good sign of your neurological state. Now, if you, your receptors in your brain become desensitized to adrenaline, you become less motivated, less driven. You have a harder time sending the activation signal to your muscles. Uh, in your heart, it will also affect cardiovascular capacity. But what happens when you deload for strength competition is that you reduce training volume or other variable. You reduce training stress. It actually doesn't matter how you, you do your deload. Okay? You, you reduce training stress. And by reducing training stress for 7, 10, 14 days, depending on what you're doing, you are producing less cortisol, <coughs> which means you're producing less adrenaline. So you can resensitize your receptors. So now what happens is your receptors are once again responsive to adrenaline. So my strength is back up. I did not gain strength. I just removed the component, the neurological, the, the, the beta adrenergic desensitization that prevented me from being as strong as I normally am. Okay. So that's why doing too much volume can actually backfire. And that's why when you have a very strong nervous system, you can create a much stronger adrenaline response from less work. So that's another reason why you can't tolerate as much volume. Because in reality, if you step, you stop three reps short of failure, it's like a beginner going to failure. And since a beginner, if, the, if he's advised to stop three reps short of failure, it's like you stopping five reps short of failure. How much of a stimulus are you getting from that? Zero. Of course, you would need tens of tons of sets. But if you are capable of pushing to failure and you want to avoid burning out and having your performance decrease, you absolutely need to bring your, your, your volume down. So with regard to allocating volume for an athlete, then regardless of whether they're beginner or intermediate or advanced or anything like that, um, obviously there's going to be a big difference in terms of how you structure the volume just within the training session. So, you know, if you're prioritizing your main lifts or if you're kind of stacking up a little bit extra volume on the accessories and auxiliary movements, things like that. So what, what are some of the things that you look at that indicate, Hey, we need to either increase volume, decrease volume, maybe change the frequency or even just shift where the volume distribution or what the volume distribution looks like within the session, like I said, either prioritizing main lifts, auxiliaries, or uh, accessory lifts. Right, right from the start, uh, depending on if you, we were talking about a strength athlete or like my bobsleigh guys, the same thing. Uh, the closer we get to the test or competition, the more volume I spend on the big lifts. In fact, the last four weeks, we basically have zero uh, assistance work or very little okay only if there is something that we really need to work on a last minute thing normally it's all the volume is allocated to the big lifts because we want to be as neurologically efficient as possible uh i might change the tempo for i might have one day where i have a slow eccentric one day where i have pauses in the lift and one day it's normal lifting uh, or it could be partial lifting for an overload i can train several different ways but it's still the same the, the same movement pattern the main lift at the beginning of the off season uh, we will have a lot more volume spent on, on, on assistance work. Uh, in fact, like the, the, the female powerlifter I was mentioning earlier, uh, she's in the, the, the first phase of her prep period and she has zero competitive lift in there. 
but she, she's coming from a, like a big season with like what five competitions so it's all a systems work to target her weakness it's crazy with covid on and she had covid on top of that it's crazy um so yeah that's a huge 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 season yeah, yeah. and then so the, the, the more we progress and now she because now she's a pro in Europe, she, she, she will have a season where she can actually compete pretty much every month of the year. Uh, so that's a, that's a big challenge. But for that, we have like, like 16, we, uh, we have five months to prep. So eventually we'll switch to still assistance lift dominant with like 20% of the volume spent on the main lift and 80%, it's gonna be 50-50, then it's gonna be 80-20, then it's gonna be only the big lifts. Uh, and as far as, where I allocate the volume, the, my, my, my core philosophy is uh, the first half of the off season or the prep period is spent correcting weaknesses. The last half is spent emphasizing your strength. Or, or depending on the athlete, we can actually increase the, the duration of the, the, the weaker, the, the weakness phase because if they have more weaknesses but normally it's the way we work uh, and and i don't the approach i use is personally i see myself more as a problem solver than a programmer and my programming actually reflects that so i i actually want to fix a lagging muscle in a phase in four weeks so we actually bombard it so so for example we, we can focus on as much as two weaknesses at one at the same time and the rest is really put on back on back burn. So we spend almost all of the assistance volume on fixing that weakness. Uh, and then it, it gradually tunes out until at the end of the cycle, it's only work to emphasize the strength. And obviously the volume will always go down as the cycle progresses. Awesome. And so that, that's kind of like big picture stuff. Let's say you're working with an athlete at any given point now, doesn't necessarily matter um, where they are in their competitive phase. What are some of the indicators that maybe they would respond better to more volume or maybe they would respond better to less volume? Like how do you make those determinations? Well, I use uh, the athletes I work with use the, the WHOOP application, okay, uh, which actually calculate the recovery level from each session and, and from day to day. Uh, so that's one tool I use. I also use, the, each athlete has to give me three numbers, body weight every day, body weight, uh, how are you feeling on a scale of 10? Outside of, not the workout, just how are you feeling and how do you evaluate the quality of your workout, perceived quality of the workout scale of one to 10. And I found that these measures actually correlate pretty well with the recovery index of the WHOOP app and depending on what i'm seeing uh, I, I will adjust training variables accordingly my principle my principle is that volume and intensiveness are always basically polar opposites if i increase volume i need to decrease intensiveness if i increase intensity i need to decrease volume so, so it's more a matter of understanding what the athlete needs and i'm actually focusing on that one variable i don't like to make things too complex the methods i use are already really complex. So if I start to play with two variables or three variables at the same time, I'm gonna have a headache and it's not gonna be efficient. Uh, sometimes you don't, you don't want perfect to be the enemy of good enough. Uh, so, so for example, if I determine that for that period of that, that, that athlete's life or that prep, we are focusing on intensiveness, I set my volume and it normally, no, it normally never changed. Well, it will change, but I don't change my plan. 
I will play with the intensiveness. And if I find for, for some reason that the intensiveness is burning her out, I will decrease it and increase volume for a short period of time. But if I decide that this athlete responds better to higher intensiveness, lower volume, I'm, I'm 100% focusing on intensiveness and only playing with volume for a very short period if she needs a, a period of active recovery, if she needs uh, to work on, on technical issues. With, with good athletes, I, I use volume mostly to uh, correct technical issues. Uh, very rarely to correct muscle building issues because from my experience, you don't build muscle better from high volume if you push your sets hard enough. But that's the big if. I mean, if someone is not capable of pushing the sets hard, then we will focus more on the, the volume variable. But then I will, I will use the same measures. If for a week, all the recovery measures are like at 47%, we will decrease volume. If she's like at 85, 90%, then we can increase volume. If it's the variable I decide is the dominant element in a workout. So then obviously the amount of weights, because it's powerlifting, will always be uh, the, the most important factor. But the secondary one is either how hard you push your sets and how much volume you do. I pick one. I only pick one of the two to focus on to emphasize the other one is lowered. And that's the one I, I, I play with. The only reason why I would change that during a training cycle if, if, I, if I don't see a physiological response, if I don't see an improvement in the lift. Uh, then I would, I would actually change the focus. I might go to a higher volume instead of higher intensiveness. It doesn't happen often, especially if you understand who benefits better from higher intensiveness and who benefits more from higher volume. But, but, but normally I, I pick the one variable I focus on and that's the one I, I adjust depending on recovery. And I only play with the other one uh, if... Uh, there is something going on from a recovery perspective, for example, that would need both variables to be lowered. Uh, if she's going on vacation or if the athlete is going on vacation, for example, I might do a very brief two weeks or 10 days where both variables are high. I would increase volume and intensiveness like a stress period because I know on vacation they wouldn't train. They will barely train. Uh, so I can actually give a stress to the body because it will have a whole week to recover and we will not overtrain. Uh, so that, that, that's pretty much how I do it. I, I would honestly like to give you more precise measures, but, but it, it's pretty much how I work. It, it's more instinct than principles. Uh, if, if that, if that sounds. Uh, yeah, no, that, that makes perfect sense. And so it's, it, it's essentially like you're, you're looking at the indicators and, and it's more the accumulative effect of the indicators, because I think that's one thing too, that a lot of people get, uh, a little caught up on is you have a bad training session all of a sudden you're like oh my god am i doing too much my you know whereas you mentioned over the span of a week if we start seeing a clear trend that i think you know those numbers can capture that to a fairly good degree like even just talking about stress and mood and sleep and body weight and all those things collectively i think say a lot more than just those individual metrics do on their own um, even a week sometimes it's not long i'm trying just to find a yeah. For example, her whoop on uh, last week, okay, her average recovery was 44%, which is super low. And this week, it's up, it's back up to 74%. And the only thing that changed was that she was in a caloric deficit before, she's in a caloric surplus now. Mm -hmm. 
So sometimes you don't jump the gun. I mean, if you have a bad session or even a bad week, first, be before you want, and okay, before you adjust the program, look at elements outside of the program that could yeah. be the cause of the bad session. Uh, it could be it could be nutrition, could be recovery, uh, could be just having a bad day, could be stress outside of them. And once you eliminate, okay, that could be the cause, then you can look at a training program. But oftentimes I find that if the program is well-designed, uh, it's mostly one of these four factors like recovery, nutrition, outside stress, uh, and um, well, that's the three factors that, that are actually the problem with, with lack of recovery. Yeah, and I think for me anyways, one of the biggest influences on my understanding of like athlete recovery and just like stimulus to fatigue and all that stuff was uh, John Kiley and, and his kind of critique of periodization and how he talks about allostatic load. So, you know, even looking at work stress, if you're in a really busy work season, I mean, and there, there's even a ton of research on um, injury rates on college athletes relative to high stress periods, like examinations and things like that, where we see a, a pretty dramatic spike in, in injury rates. And, and it's like, that's due to stress, you know, their focus is a little off, they're not going to perform as well. Maybe they're not <laughs> you know, giving as much attention to the lift or something like that because they have other shit on their mind. And so like the, the amount of impact that those outside variables have on your performance inside training with all things being equal are pretty damn significant. So even just like you said, nutrition and a deficit, that's an obvious one. That's, that's fairly common, but like you have a big fight with your, with your spouse or something like that, or you got a kid who's keeping you up and all those things can, can play a huge, huge role. And sometimes it's not even, like bad stress. I mean, if yeah. you have a long night yeah. out, for example, even if you had a good a good night, it will affect your performance. Yeah. I don't remember that um, because I'm trying to find the guy's name. He's, I think he's in Australia now. Uh, and what he noticed is that the injury rate happens when there's a, a, a stress increase that is too rapid. So you can actually tolerate a high amount of physical stress as long as you gradually work up to that. I think, in fact, the two things you mentioned that, co that were correlated with the highest injury rate were first, too rapid, too sharp of an increase in training load. So for example, you just because, for example, you think your training is not working, I'm gonna double the workload while you're gonna get injured. And the second one is uh, monotonous training load. It's always the same load. You actually lose focus, lose, lose motivation. That's one of the reasons why it's actually important to include variation in your training. There are obvious, and not just the exercises or the movement, but also the training load. You actually need, if you wave it up and down, normally it actually is quote unquote safer. Uh, because if the load is always the same, subconsciously, you, you, you turn the autopilot on and you are just a little bit less focused. Now, of course, this is mostly done studies on, on, on rugby, if I'm not mistaken. It, how does it correlate to lifting? I'm, I'm not 100% sure, but there's certainly some application there. I know that personally, when I get bored with training, I'm not focused quite as much. Because when you think about it, and we can talk about training as much as we want, science of periodization, programming, whatever you want to call it. In reality, the number one thing, in my opinion, is training hard. That's the most important thing, being focused and training hard. In fact, if you can train hard and focused and focus on your weaknesses and fix your weaknesses, you're good to go. I mean, you can train it however you want. If you're respecting those two things and you're recovering, you'll progress. There's no magical program. In fact, many people who actually, for example, they will 
do my trading program or do somebody else's trading program, the reason why they're getting results is not because the program is better. It's because they're motivated because it's written by me. So they are a bit more driven when they train. They train a bit harder. It gives more results. I call it the, the, the protein power phenomenon. Like the kid for the first time in his life, right? he buy a supplement. He's like 16 years old and he thinks he's going to turn into the Incredible Hulk. So, and just the fact that he's taking that supplement, he, he trains harder, he eats more, he, he rests more, he doesn't party as much because he wants to make the most out of it and he gets better results. And the first thing you think, oh, that's the supplement. In reality, it's everything else that was caused because he was more motivated to train, more driven to train. Yeah, it's almost like the synergistic effect on, on like, well, placebo, but then also like the athlete's perception of what they're doing and the efficacy of right. it. Like it, and there, there's quite a bit of research. And actually, this is what uh, one of the things that John Kylie talked about that I was actually pretty shocked when I heard him say this because like this dude is very, very high level coach, super smart guy. Um, and one of the things that he said was he was like, I think, okay, so I, 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 I don't want to speak for him, but this was what I remember. So I'm, I'm going to paraphrase and not say that this is exactly what he said. But uh, from what I remember, he said that the most important thing of a training program is whether or not the athlete believes in it, 100%. not the volume, not the intensity. And I was like, I was like, wow, that's, that's pretty, that's a powerful statement to me coming from someone at that caliber as, as a coach. And I definitely understand what he's saying though, because like I've had, I've had instances where it's like, I've doubted what, you know, I've written for myself as a coach. Right. And that was one of the reasons why I ended up having to hire a coach about six months ago was because I was like, I got as strong as I will on my own. And now I'm just doubting myself too much. I'm overthinking things and it's just progressively getting worse. I'm just going to hand it to someone else. I believe in him. I've been getting really strong. I enjoy it and I'm engaged. And so it's kind of like this perfect storm where, you have all these beneficial things coming together to, to make your performance really, really good. And like you said, it's like, you know, I believe in the training and I'm like, I want to get the most of the training. So I'm going to dial in my sleep. I'm going to dial in my nutrition. I'm going to do all of these things way, way better than I probably would have previously. And so that belief, even if that doesn't necessarily influence, which I definitely think it does, at the very least, it catalyzes all these productive behaviors that do influence training performance cumulatively. It's funny you mentioned that because I had a coach tell me exactly the same thing like 15 years ago, and that's actually what opened my eyes to it. And that's when I started working in St. Louis. I, I was hired to be a, the head strength and conditioning coach at uh, the official center from the, for the St. Louis Blues. And the first guy I met when I was getting there was the athletic director. And was, his name is Andre Benoit. Maybe you know him because he's in Calgary. Uh, anyway, Andre told me, well, Christian, what's the most important thing for... He was, uh, he was a Poliquin dude, wasn't he? He was a yeah. Charles Martin guy. I, uh, yeah, I, th I, thought, I thought that sounded familiar. He's a former, like, uh, luge athlete. Did yeah, know? yeah, yeah. And he looks like Bruce Willis, not that it matters. He's the highest, the highest skilled coach I've ever seen with women. Dude, the guy will go shopping with them. He will become their best friend. It's funny. Anyway, so I got into his office and he asked me, well, Christian, what's the most important thing for a client to get results? Now, to put things in perspective, you know, I, I have been training pro athletes. I've been training Olympians. I published two books at that point, published article for T Nation. So I really thought I knew my shit, right? So I said, well, you know, I think it's the proper selection of the training methods to elicit the right physiological response to bring the adaptation you need to get the goal you want. 
And he looked at me like I was a, like a, an extraterrestrial. It's like, okay, I'm going to try something else. It's uh, selecting the best exercises to respect the biomechanics and structure of the client as to improve performance as much as possible. I said, Christian, have you ever trained someone? I said, dude, what the fuck are you talking about? Well, in, in, in French, it's even better. But still, you have way too few words, too swear words in English. We are much better than you in sounding pompous and arrogant and having swear words. Anyway, so Andre told me the exact same thing. Okay, the, the client needs to be motivated, 100% motivated by, by the training program and trust the trainer 100%. This is the, the, these are the only two things that matters when it comes to getting maximum results. Yeah, of course, the program will matter to a point uh, because if you train like an idiot, well, you're going to get idiot results. But if the training program is non-idiotic, like being motivated by the program is 100% the most important thing. Yeah, and I, I think that caveat's pretty important as well because a lot of people look at that and they're like, well, what if you do 80 sets? And it's like, okay, this is kind of under the assumption that you're not doing bad training. But if it's right. like right. Exactly. up to a point, it's like it's good not enough. Ridiculous training. Yeah, yeah. So it's like if, if it kind of reaches that critical threshold of like this is good enough to produce results, the additional benefits that you get from that, it's it's kind of like I sort of see it like the additional volume. You know, it's like you can do 10 sets more, but you might only get like, you know, 5% or 3% better results, which is nothing to scoff at, but it's also like, you know, five times the amount of work, right? But then Sometimes. what you get from, from the belief in the program and your desire to really execute it with a hundred percent intentionality is a lot of the times outweighs that additional benefit that you'd get from tweaking and refining something that maybe you're like, I don't really buy into this. Yeah, and sometimes just the, and even from a physiological perspective, I mean, for example, even if doing more volume brings you a bit more results on paper, maybe it prevents you from training hard for a few sessions because you're not fully recovered. So even though that session might give you like one or two more percent gains, if your next two sessions are suboptimal because of the systemic fatigue, is it worth it? Say, I'm going to give you, the, of course, it's an extreme example. I do lots of stupid shit. I don't write about the stupid shit I do because I have my, my expert aura to protect. It, it was a few years ago. I, I wanted to get back into the Olympic lifts, Olympic weightlifting, competing. And the thing that was holding me back was my leg strength because I've been training like a bro for a few years. I mean, before that, Olympic weightlifters squatting six days a week. And before that, football three days a week. I, I was sick and tired of squatting. And doing legs all together so i train like a bro so i needed to regain my leg strength so i'm in a gym i'm gonna like really blitz my legs i'm gonna do something like i'm gonna do a complex because i like complex so three exercises first one there is squat <clears throat> i'm like 160 kilos on the bar i have chains on each side and i have weight releasers so the first rep is done with the weight releasers then i do three normal reps with a load with a chain and stuff like that <clears throat> then i move on to barbell jump squats with 60 kilos doing five jumps as high as i can then I move on to depth jumps, plyometrics. And yeah, Olympic lifting, you need to be explosive. I did 10 rounds of that. Dude, that's a fucking great workout. I'm going to regain my leg strength in no time. I'm going to kick ass. Dude, it took me. And that's like a month and a half later. Exactly. <laughs> 14 days. I had like this shooting pain in my vastus lateralis. For 14 days, I couldn't get into a quarter squat. It took me 21 days to be able to squat what I was squatting before that workout. That's an extreme example, but but sometimes doing like, more volume, more stress might give you on paper a better growth stimulus, 
but it can have a negative impact on your performance for a week or even two weeks. So is it really worth it? Yeah, and especially with, with something like powerlifting where the, the training is the sport, you, you take that much time off from skill development and now you, I mean, let's say because you're doing too much volume in one session, you go from squatting twice a week to once a week. Mm. And let's say you do that for a year. Well, now you only have 52 exposures, you know, assuming your training doesn't change dramatically and you have the same basic schedule. You only have 52 exposures where if you would have done it, you know, split the volume up across two days or at least had like a high low day or something like that, you could have had 104 sessions, you know, or maybe even potentially more if you did like a, you know, like a 2.5. So like a two squat days and then one kind of like belt squat or some shit day, you know, like you, you could double or triple the amount of exposures you get um, across the time span of a year, right? right. So that, that definitely makes sense. It's yeah, um, important to get as many good sessions as you can. Yeah. It's better to have, let's say, 10 good sessions and have three awesome sessions and then three shitty ones and three decent ones. Yeah, and I've always noticed, this is just for myself, and I think the reason why this works really well for me is because my my go-to is like push super hard, you know? And so I think because of that, I tend to always now err on the side of caution and be a little bit conservative with my load selection. And I think that allows me to, to preserve my like maintain a good balance to stimulus to fatigue ratio, you know, and so that I'm not like totally destroyed for subsequent training sessions. And that that's been a really, really big help for me um, is just kind of erring on the side of caution, going a little bit lighter. I finish my top set. I'm like, ah, you know, I probably could have got maybe five kilos more or something like that on, on, on that lift, maybe even seven or 10 kilos more, maybe, you know, but then at the end of the day, it's still a really productive training session. I don't feel beat up. The next training session or the next time I repeat that workout, if I do, I can hit that weight and it still feels like I'm a little undershooting it. So it's like my strength gains never really outpace my fatigue. Right. And so that's been, a, that's been a really good guideline for me anyways, just because I know I have a tendency to overshoot. And so, yeah. <laughs> and really the thing is that a session causes systemic fatigue and a, a hard session. People don't, well, they, they, they kind of get it concept wise but they don't know what really happens is that when the nervous system is is quote unquote fatigue the, the the strength of the excitatory drive is actually lower so even if you're feeling okay if you're not sore if that drive is not strong enough you, you're going to get weaker and in a sport like powerlifting i see that a lot like sprinting or something like that in that you don't want to do your skill when you are neurologically compromised Okay, you, you cannot, you could actually squat or, or bench with some slight soreness and your performance would not be affected that much or at all. If your nervous system is fresh and can perform optimally. But if you're feeling great physically and the nervous system is not sending that strong drive, your performance will be negatively affected. And these are the worst workouts. These are the workouts that completely kill your motivation because you walk into the gym, dude, I'm feeling fucking great today. No soreness. I'm loose, I'm in shape, and then you turn it and you, I'm going to bench press, I'm going to get 200 kilos today, and you fail at 170 or 180 because, neurologically speaking, you're just not there. 
and, and that's the workout that kills your for example if you expect to bench 190 and you're up to 190 and it's easy so that you actually believe i could get 200 but you stop there these are a lot more satisfying and a lot more positive for your future progress dude i know i have room left then missing out 180 when you sh were shooting for 200 even though it's the same guy it's the same strength level you're still strong enough to get well at, at 180 but you fell at 180 because your neurologic system was not efficient today so what i want is just like when i when i work with the with an athlete i don't want any sprinting session done with any systemic fatigue because that's going to screw up their performance it's going to mess up their coordination pattern and even their intramuscular intramuscular coordination and that will negatively impact performance and if you practice enough in that bad neurological state you're programming a new motor pattern in your brain and you lose efficiency that's why for example and that has happened to many lifters let's say that you can and that happened to me when i was like at my strongest i mean let's say you can you can press 200 kilos pretty much every week you know that's a weight you can get and you train just a little bit harder a bit harder a bit harder at one point you you don't even notice it but one day you can't get 190 of your chest even though the muscle is still there it's just because gradually because you were going into the red on all of these work sets gradually gradually you tinkered with your neurological with your motor pattern and even though it was not a big change eventually after two months or three months the motor pattern is completely changed and you're less efficient and you lose strength and that's why i believe that the last thing you do on the lift on a, let's just look at the the, the the competition lift or or sprinting or skill that's important to you the last set or the last rep you do is the one that has the greatest impact on motor learning okay if you finish on a shitty rep that's the rep that has the greatest impact on the nervous system you need two bad reps to compensate for a good one so for example let's say you finish on a really shitty set then you have to do another set with a lighter load to make sure it's perfect okay and that adds volume so that's why going to your limit once in a while that's fine but if you do that too often then you need actually to add volume under heavy barbell just to avoid losing that, 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 that technique. That's why the, the West Side system kind of avoid the, the conjugate system kind of avoid that by never doing the competition lifts all out. It's mostly trained for speed. The main benefit for that is that you can actually get perfect reps all the time. Whereas if you're doing max effort on, the, on those competition lifts, max effort by definition will have a suboptimal muscle recruitment pattern. Uh, the technique is not always good that's a max effort that's fine but, but if you do that you, when you do the competition lift you can't have that because you want to practice your skill as much as your strength anyway no that that totally makes sense and so honestly we pretty much covered everything that uh, that i wanted to talk about so uh, before we end off here where can people find you Uh, well, you just search for Tebarmi, whether it's on, on social media, on Instagram, on Facebook, obviously articles on T Nation and my website, Tebarmi. I, I don't like the name. It was a brand that was developed for me by somebody else, and, and I went with it. I, it might change in the future, but anyway, that's where it is right now. 
Awesome. So all that stuff's going to be linked up in the show notes, guys. Definitely go and make sure you check out his website. Make sure you give him a follow on Instagram. Um, Christian, man, it was it was really, really awesome having you on. Super interesting conversation. Thanks so much for, for jumping on the show. It was great, man.